Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. All right, please turn to Galatians chapter 6, page number 975, if you use one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. Today is part two of a multi-part sermon here as we are concluding the letter to the Galatians. Last week we worked all the way up through verse 12, made a long, lot of progress, so today we're going to pick up from where we left off, and again, we will make a lot of progress today. But we're going to begin by reading Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, And then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if we will please now look at verse 11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor excuse me, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we do ask now that you help us, um, that you speak to us through your word today, that you convict us, and that you lead us to humility, to repentance, to self-examination, to recognize how we can be very much like the false teachers in Galatia. And I pray that we will recognize any of those spots in our own lives and turn away from them and turn to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I think back over my 21 years now of being a believer in Jesus, um, I think of a number of passages of Scripture that God has used in my own heart and life over the years that have had a big impact uh, on me. And over the, the past 10 years, I've shared many of those with you here and there. Some I've come back to many times because of, you know, just how important they've been to me. And so they've come up repeatedly in sermons. For example, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, uh, Paul's words there where he says uh, that God saved us, called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, has come up repeatedly over the years because that was the verse that God used to open my eyes to the gospel. Um, when I was 18 years old, freshman in college, I, I hit that verse and got stopped by it in my tracks, fell to my knees in the end, uh, recognizing my need for Jesus, my inability to save myself. And so that's obviously a very special passage to me, and I've quoted it many times. Of course, you could think of others, John 13, 34, and 35. How many times have I quoted that one? I won't even read it again today, uh, just because that's had a huge impact on my life. Colossians 1, 28, and 29. I could go on, but you get the idea. However, there are other passages that have had a big impact on my life as well that maybe I just haven't shared with us ever or very rarely anyway, just due to whatever reason. It wasn't a reason necessarily, just hasn't come up a lot. I thought of a couple of them uh, this week. One, 
was the passage in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And this is one you'll recognize, I think, when I start reading it, at least most of you will anyway. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. That's when I was called this the Brady Bunch passage because of those two words there. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Those verses are always going to be special to me and to Jamie as well because they were the basis of a, of a play, of a drama that we were in in college for an entire year. We traveled um, on weekends or all through the summer uh, across the country doing this play. We called it, the, it was called The One Needful Thing, and it was based just on this idea that we can busy ourselves with a lot of work, a lot of serving, a lot of ministry, a lot of good things. And yet, in the midst of all of that busyness and all of that serving and all of that work, miss the thing that matters most. And so that's, you know, because of a year of, of doing a drama was based on that passage, those verses have just been kind of blazing across my mind over the years, and I, I can't tell you how many times I feel the conviction of the Spirit in relation to that very idea, just filling your, filling your life with busyness, good busyness even, but, but losing sight of what really matters. Uh, another one, the last one I'll share with you, and I'm sure this is one I had heard many times before, but it never really stood out to me until about my junior or senior year of college. Uh, I don't remember the specific context or circumstances, but when I heard it, it both convicted me to the core and uh, probably made me angrier than it should have, to be quite honest with you, at the time. The passage comes from Matthew 15, and it is going over a conversation that took place between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now, just to set the stage, remember that the Pharisees are the leading religious party of Jesus's day, of Paul's day. They are the uber-righteous, the ultra-conservative. Uh, they would be the ones who, from the outside at least, appear to have everything together and to be living a holy life before God. And if you did not live up to the Pharisees' standards, then you're looked down upon, right? You're judged based on the fact that you don't meet their very stringent requirements for righteousness, righteousness and so you're viewed as being subpar, or unspiritual, sinner, whatever. And the problem with that, though, was that most of the things that they would focus on, that they looked at, were uh, non-biblical things. They were additions to the Scripture in the sense that they would take a concept from God's Word, and then they would say, well, we don't want to violate that, and so they'd come up with all these other little rules and try to follow those things. So it, it wasn't that these man-made rules they followed were necessarily unbiblical. It's just that they were non-biblical. Do you understand the difference in those ideas there between unbiblical and non-biblical? It's not necessarily bad. In fact, I think there's a, a really a place for that kind of an approach to Scripture sometimes in our lives as we're trying to obey what God has commands, us, commands us to do. But it becomes a problem when you begin to take those decisions and to put them on a, a level that's par with Scripture. And Jesus had a tiny little problem with that kind of approach, you know, and he butted heads with them uh, quite often which is part of the reason they wanted him dead. Well, here in Matthew 15, Matthew shows us one of these little interchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees. So just listen to what he says. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And I'll just pause and explain there. Because of the, the law's requirements of cleanliness, the, the Pharisees had expanded those laws out and made hand washing a like a mark of righteousness before God, which I know most of us probably agree with, but we're, for a moment, we'll just leave that out. But they made it like an a, a, a act of obedience. If you didn't wash your hands before you ate your food, then you were going to 
You're going to violate God's word, except, of course, the problem is God didn't say that. That's not in Scripture. Sorry, kids, don't listen to that. It's not in Scripture, though, right? So Jesus answers them and says, And why do you, Pharisees, break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. Again, I'll pause just to make sure you know what's going on here. You know, the, the law had prescribed that people, with children would take care of their parents when they got older and needed help. They would, they would be there to care for them. And so the Pharisees had found a little loophole, a little workaround, that if they took all of their possessions and all of their money and they dedicated it to God, this is now God's money, God's possession. Well, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, now I can't help you with this money because it belongs to God. Too bad. Too bad for you. I hope you had a good IRA because you're going to be on your own now. And, and so, you know, Jesus is calling them out for the sake of your tradition. You now are making void the word of God, and here comes then the statement that rocked my world in college. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that statement of Jesus there really resonated with me, particularly at that time, because I felt like I had grown up in that kind of a religious approach where the, the commandments of men were very much placed on par with the doctrines of God. And like many of you in here, no doubt, I grew up in circles where there were many um, standards, rules, beliefs, teachings, even doctrines, if we get right down to it in some of those cases, that may not have been explicitly uh, unbiblical, but they were definitely non-biblical. Okay, there were things that had been kind of added into what it meant to look like and live like a Christian. And yet, if you did not follow those things and live up to those things, then you were judged. You, you know, as long as people could look in and you could see that outward shell of cultural Christianity. Now, that might look different in each of our stories as we tell that, but I think you probably know what I mean. As long as, as, long as people looked at us and we had that outward shell of cultural Christianity correct, then we were fine. It didn't matter about our hearts. It just, we looked good. We had all the boxes checked in the exterior and everything was okay. Conversely, if you didn't live up to those things, you know, if you didn't somehow meet that cultural uh, sense, then again, regardless of what really was going on in your heart, you weren't fine. It didn't even matter what was on the inside. It only mattered what was on the shell. And I got the sense then, even as a college kid, and again, it was both convicting, it resonated with me, but I also used it the wrong way too, I admit, but that, that Jesus' words there, that people can honor him with their lips and yet their heart be far from him in vain, teaching the, the, the commandments of men as if they're the word of God itself. I, I got the sense that those were as applicable today as they were 2,000 years ago. Well, guess what? We're going to see a little bit of that sentiment here in Galatians. Last week, we began the end, okay? In verse 11, Paul begins bringing this letter to the Galatians to a conclusion. And after taking the pen in hand and writing his signature sentence in verse 11, he begins to recap a little bit for them his, kind of his argument, his reason for writing to them in the first place, beginning there in verse 12. And we learn something new about the false teachers in verse 12, and that's that they were relying on force, not physical force, but emotional, uh, communal, psychological, whatever kind of force they had, 
to try to get the Galatian believers to be circumcised. And again, I said, whenever you see that, you kind of get the impression that maybe the person's argument's not that strong if they're having to feel like they have to guilt you or shame you or whatever the case may be into going along with them. But that's what these false teachers were doing. They were arm twisting the Galatians, just trying to get them to do what they wanted them to do, and that was be circumcised and keep the law. Second, we learned that fear was their motivation. Uh, They were afraid of being persecuted for the cross. Uh, You see, if Jesus is really the Messiah that he claims to be, if the cross is really the inauguration of a new way of being made right with God, as Paul said it was, then that would mean that that old system was done. And if that old system was done and you embraced that and began to live that out practically in your life as a Jew in Paul's day, there were going to be repercussions for you. You you were going to be, uh, you know, rejected. You were going to be probably... uh, uh, kicked out of your family, of your community. You might be physically persecuted. You might, you might even be killed. And the false teachers clearly didn't want any of that. They don't want any of the persecution that would come along with the gospel. They're afraid of it. And so they taught that you still had to keep the law. Maybe even in addition to believing in Jesus, you still had to keep the law in order to be saved. But they're saying this out of fear. And yet we see now that despite what they taught, This is not how they actually lived. Because as we pick up back here now in verse 13, Paul begins to address this very issue. He says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. He begins by calling out the hypocrisy of these people. The group in view here is, as you can see in verse 13, those who are circumcised. Now, while this may be an obvious statement that I don't need to make, I'm going to do it just in case so that we're all on the same page. When he says those who are circumcised, he's not simply referring to anyone and everyone who has ever been physically circumcised, because if that's the case, then Paul would be included. If that's the case, then some of the Galatian believers, perhaps, who were Jewish, brought up Jewish, that they would be included. If that's the case, then anyone and everyone who had been physically circumcised was included, but that's not the case. Paul doesn't have either himself or maybe the Galatian believers who were Jewish earlier in mind. This is simply Paul's way of referring to the false teachers. In fact, you can see this confirmed if you look just a little further down here in the text when he says that they desire to have you circumcised, they want to boast in your flesh. Well, who is they in that particular context? The the they points back to those who are circumcised. So these are the false teachers he's talking about here now. So this isn't a general comment. It is a specific comment describing the false teachers. They have been circumcised. So on that specific point, they have indeed practiced what they preached. They have submitted themselves to the knife of circumcision, which again, let me remind you, in the Jewish context of Paul's day, this is the definitive mark of being made right with God. This is the way you enter God's covenant community. It is the sign that you are one of Abraham's offspring. So it is without any exaggeration or hyperbole, a really big deal for them, a really big deal. But apparently, it's the only deal for them. Because despite the fact that they have obeyed by becoming circumcised, that's about all they did, Paul says. Paul says that even those who were circumcised did not themselves keep the law. I mean, they obeyed it to a point, but they didn't keep the rest of it. 
And this, of course, I think isn't a surprising revelation, if you know anything about the New Testament at all, given everything else that's said about, about the way that the, this, the Pharisees, that most popular and powerful Jewish party, the most um, um, influential Jewish religious party of Paul's day, this isn't a surprise if you know anything about how they operated, because this is something actually that Jesus confronted over and over and over again. I'll give you just a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 36, Jesus has this very long, extended um, speech about the problem with the Pharisees. And I'm, it's so long, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to read a few parts just to give you a sense of Jesus' thought on this subject. The passage begins like this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. So he's telling the people that the most powerful, influential, conservative, righteous party, religious party of their day are hypocrites. They say things, they don't do them. They tell you to go do them, but they're not going to carry that burden themselves. This is the, the crowd we're dealing with. And then having kind of laid that out, he gives the crowd, he speaks it to the Pharisees. I don't know if they were present or not, but it's intended for them. He gives the crowd seven woes. Now, we don't speak in woes very often in the sense that I'm going to pronounce woe upon you. But Jesus is about to pronounce woe upon the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. And he does it not one time, not two times, but seven times, which is kind of significant and symbolic in the context. Just listen to the woes, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? He's looking at him going, you're focusing on the wrong things, teaching people to focus on the wrong things. What are you doing? Uh, verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe your spice rack. That's what he's saying to him. You tithe your spice rack and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you out, also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Seven woes pronounced against them because of their hypocrisy. And it's pretty, it's pretty cutting. It's pretty brutal to think about what they're saying and what he's accusing them of. We're talking about the Pharisees here and those who follow. These are viewed as being the most righteous people, or most righteous Jews in Jesus' day, and yet he accuses them of not truly keeping the law. Yeah, they look good on the outside. Oh, yeah, you see them on the street, and they're praying, and they look righteous, and yeah. Outwardly, they appear to keep the law, but the law was not meant to be merely a code for outward conformity. It was actually meant, meant to dress the heart. David got it. The Jews had missed this, but David got it after being confronted with his sin, with Bathsheba, his adultery with her. As he begins to write out his prayer to God in song, Psalm 51, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. But wait a minute, didn't, didn't God command sacrifice and burnt offerings in response to sin? Well, yeah, he did command that. Well, then why, why is David saying that God doesn't want that? If God doesn't want that, what is it that God wants? Well, David continues, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The point is clear. God ultimately wants the heart to change in those moments. He wants you to, to think about your sin and be convicted, even to look at the sacrifice, no doubt, and recognize that should be you. That should be me. I should be the one dying. This lamb is taking death from my sin here. Like, it should change your heart. Yeah, you've got to do the sacrifice the law commands it, but the desire of God is that the heart would be affected and changed. You see the same thing in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. I love that story. Uh, that's Matthew chapter 19. This is the guy who comes to Jesus and he asks the question, a teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now think about the question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's a very specific question. He wants to know, hey, where's the secret sauce? What do I have to do? What's the box I have to check to make sure that I go to heaven based on my works? And so Jesus, he answers the question that he asks. All right, here's what you have to do to have eternal life. You have to keep the commandments, all right? If you can do that, you can go to heaven. And the guy's like, oh, great, which ones? Because I've kept them all from my youth. Which ones do you have in mind, Jesus? He names a few off for him, just a random sampling. He's like, oh yeah, I've done all those. What do I still lack? And now that the guy has asked a better question, <laughs> Jesus goes for the throat. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Just go sell everything you own. You know, put it all on Craigslist today. Sell the house, sell the cars, sell all the furniture. You know, get yourself down to a backpack. Let's go on the journey together. <laughs> what does the man do? He turns away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What, what in the world is Jesus doing in that interchange? Well, he's actually showing the man that he, he's not the He's not kept the commandments like he claims. He, he hasn't even kept the first one. The first commandment was, you shall love the Lord, or excuse me, there is one God, you shall not serve any other gods before me. That's a loose translation. That's the S, the S-P-T, Stacey Potts translation, right? 
You haven't even kept the first one. Because when he's given the moment, so he says, I want to have eternal life. I want to be with God forever. He's given the moment to choose between God and his things. He walks away because he'd rather have his things. He obeyed some outward aspects of the law, sure, but he had missed the point. The law was not meant to be merely a code for outward conformity. That wasn't, that wasn't what God wanted. It was meant in the end to address the heart. Jesus addressed that in the Gospels, and Paul, Paul is addressing it here. Yes, yeah, sure, the false teachers are circumcised. They've checked that box off. They've gone through an outward act of conformity. They've obeyed in that sense. But, but they're not really keeping the law. Do not be deceived. What they say and what they do are not the same thing. They are just like the Pharisees. They talk a good game and they look good on the outside, but inwardly they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They're hypocrites. And yet they desire to have you circumcised so they can they can boast in your flesh. I mean, wow. It's not just that they're hypocrites. It's just hypocrisy we're talking about here. It's pride-induced hypocrisy that we're talking about here. They're just looking to put notches in their own belt. They're just looking to put some points up on their scoreboards by what you do. They want you to become like them so that they can brag about what they've done. That means they're not interested at all in the Galatians' well-being even their eternal well-being here. That's not what's motivating this. They're simply interested in their own status and their own pride. They want these people to conform to their system because it makes them look good to others. Now, I would love to tell you that this same issue and these same things aren't applicable anymore for us. And that you and I would never, ever, ever be like the false teachers in Galatia. We would never function in these ways. But, of course, all of that would be untrue and all of that would be a lie. Because we are all prone to these same kinds of, of things, that same mentality and heart that was present within the Pharisees, that was present within these false teachers here. It lurks inside of each of us. And so let me give us five things to consider as we examine our own hearts in this matter, and, and if you take notes, write these down. If you don't, just listen carefully. Number one, how easy is it for us to say one thing and yet do another? How easy is that? I mean, this is the truest and most common form of hypocrisy, right? When we tell our children, hey, don't do this, and then we do it. Or, or when we judge or condemn other believers for the very same things that we do. That's hypocrisy, right? It's the classic definition. And we are, all of us, guilty of this. Every single one of us, in big ways or small ways, in certain areas or other areas, it doesn't matter. We are all guilty of this. And this is something that I know I've been convicted of over the past few years more and more because Jesus repeatedly deals with this issue, like head on in the Gospels. Just as one example, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. For the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Those are fear-causing words, hopefully in a good way, in my heart. Do, do I want to be judged like I judge others? Do I want to be condemned like I condemn others? Do, 
do I, don't I want to be forgiven? I mean, that one right there particularly is convicting to me, like the issue of forgiveness. I think it's something that we all struggle with probably more at sometimes than others. You know, here, what has anyone, this is the thought that goes through my mind, what has anyone ever done to me? How has anyone ever sinned against me that would in any way compare to how I have sinned against God? And yet I want to be forgiven, but I don't want to forgive them. The hypocrisy of my heart in that moment is glaring to me now. And so I am trying, failing constantly, yes, but trying to be as merciful and gracious to others as I want, as God has been to me. I I am trying to be as forgiving to others, and I fail constantly as as I have been forgiven. I'm trying to obey Paul's commands in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31, 32, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from me along with all malice and to simply be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven me. Like if you're struggling in those areas, man, go memorize Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. I have. Go memorize that and let that try to drive you. And you're going to fail, I tell you, you will. But, but you have to remember that this is what we're called to do. How easy is it for us to say one thing but then do another in so many areas of life? And so we need to examine ourselves on this. Number two, how easy is it for us to focus on the externals but ignore the heart? You know, as long as we get them to conform out, outwardly, then, then we're okay. As long as we get the person to stop this or start that, we're fine, but we don't really care what's going on in the heart. You know, look, I get it. We can only discern what we see with our eyes. But, but I would encourage you that when you see something with your eyes that concerns you in someone else's life, maybe your first step, rather than condemning them and focusing on the exterior of what's going on, maybe you should just go meet with them and say, hey, what's happening here? What's going on in your heart? What? what I'm seeing this, and I just, I just don't understand. Help me out. Like, I'm, I'm concerned for you. I love you, and I want to help you at this moment. Just to go to him. Hey, and conversely, even when someone's you know, looks fine on the exterior, don't assume that everything's okay on the inside either. There, there needs to be that back and forth, that go-between between believers to come alongside each other and go, what's really going on? I see the shell, but I don't know the heart. Where's your heart? How you doing? What you struggling with? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Where, where are you hurting? Like, to ask those questions shows the greatest amount of love you can almost ever show anyone to do it. And parents, I've, I feel like I've said this for three weeks now, but I'm going to say it again. Parents, with your children, don't, again, don't focus merely on behavior and outward conformity. Just remember that. Don't, don't, that might work while they're small and at home and kind of under your control, but the moment they get out away from your control, if their heart isn't changed, they're going to go do what they want. Don't forget that. You've got to have a long view in parenting, and I have had a very short view for much of my parenting life, so I, I say it as a hypocrite perhaps to you. But you need to have a longer view. Our goal is the heart, not the hiney, okay? It's not just about spankings. It's about changing the heart. Our, we're, not, we're trying to build godly character, not just good behavior. How easy easy is it for us to focus merely on the externals and just ignore the heart? We need to examine ourselves on this. Number three, how easy easy is it for us to teach as doctrines the commandments of men? To be just like the Pharisees without even really realizing it, understanding it. 
And we all do this, all of us, me too, to varying degrees, mostly because I think of our backgrounds, and that's true uh, because of the churches we grew up in. It's true, by the way, for all the kids who are growing up here at Cornerstone. They're going to have the same experience, things that they have been taught, things that they have heard that they believe to be true, but they've never actually studied for themselves. How many of you grew up in churches where you were taught certain things? Have you gone back and examined everything you were taught and make sure it was all true? Probably not. Not completely. As things have come up, perhaps, but I'm sure we all have blind spots. Hopefully, many of those things that we were taught were truly and thoroughly biblical, but likely some of them were not. And so this becomes part of the journey of the Christian life, right? To, to study and to grow and to understand why it is that you believe what you believe. What's my saying about this? Like, I hate dumb Christians, right? That's, I've said that for years now, and I mean it. Like, because a lot of people just don't, they don't take the time. Because it's hard. It's hard sometimes to sit down and go, why do I really believe this? Like, what is it in Scripture that makes me really genuinely think this. It can be uncomfortable. It's not necessarily fun, but we need to do it. We need to be examining ourselves and our beliefs constantly so that we're not going around teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Number four, how easy is it for us to judge and condemn others who don't live up to our own non-biblical standards? And I've kind of already said this one, so I won't add a lot here. I'll just, you know, say to you, be careful. Just be careful. You know, like I said at the beginning, I do believe that there is a place for this in the Christian life. I really do. I strongly believe this. That is, we are interacting with Scripture and we're processing it through our own grid of experience, culture, and life. That there are going to be moments where we as individuals, as couples, as families, may have to make decisions that are not necessarily black and white clear in Scripture about what we are or are not going to do in a given context, in a given situation, maybe because of our own conscience maybe because of our own convictions, maybe because of our past struggles or our past sins or our past experiences that were negative or something like that. It could be a million things that might drive that. I don't think that's bad. I think that's good. It shows that you're trying to process and live out your, your faith in practical ways in the nitty-gritty experiences of life. But, but recognize that as good as that process can be for you, as important as that might be for you to do for yourself, your, your family, if it's not explicitly clear in Scripture, do not begin to judge yourself or others by those things. Do not. You, you, you personally don't have enough faith to do this. You, you personally have a conscience issue with that. Okay, then don't do this and don't do that. But unless God has specific, specifically said those things are sin and nobody should ever do them, if your brother's doing them, be very careful. Be very careful about your heart and how you respond to that person. It's very easy to live your life in such a way that you begin to examine other people and pass judgment on other people by non-biblical standards that you've created for right reasons even in your heart and life. Just don't do that. Examine yourself before you pass judgment on others over non-biblical things. And then number five, how easy is it for us to try to arm twist people into doing and believing what we want them to do and believe simply out of our own pride? The fact of the matter is, you know, if everyone in this room acted and believed and behaved exactly like I do, the world would be great for me, <laughs> okay? It would. It'd be so wonderful for me because I, you know. But, of course, that wouldn't be good because I'm not doing ev believing everything right. So that's not what we're going for here. But it would be easier. Obviously, of course, I wasn't speaking truth, but I find a tendency in my own heart to think that's true or at least to want to believe that that would be true. 
if in fact it could happen. I want to convince people that I'm right. I want them to see things like I see them. I want Jamie and the kids to do everything the way I do it and believe everything exactly the way I believe it. And I'm already trying to prepare myself for the day when my kids leave home and then come back and tell me I was wrong about this and that and the other because I did it to my parents and I know they're going to do it to me too. And man, that's going to be hard. And it's tempting with that desire to out of nothing but pure pride. I mean, pure unadulterated pride, wanting to try to force people to come around to your ways. It's so easy to try to take that approach. But you cannot do that. And I cannot do that. We have to fight that kind of approach and avoid it at all costs. Now, I'll make one final remark, and then we'll be done. I've given you five things to consider, to examine yourselves with, in relation to this issue of hypocrisy that Paul has brought up in verse 13. But my concern would be, for all of us, starting with myself, but for all of us, that as we go through those five things, that there was something in our hearts that said, oh boy, I wish, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this today. <laughs> oh, I wonder, you know, I wish my parents were here to hear these words. I wish my old pastor or church was here to hear something like that, or so-and-so, like, you know what? If, if that was the thought that went through your mind, then you missed the point completely. Let that sink in for a second. If that was the feeling that went through your heart and mind, you missed the point completely. Because the point here is not that you go out and try to point out everybody else's hypocrisy. The point is that you become convicted of your own. That you examine yourself and not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your children, not your parents, not whatever. So I say this first to myself and then to all of you, the first focus point when you begin to examine hypocrisy is here. It's not out there. It's in here. And so may God humble us all and reveal to us our own hearts so that we can be right before him on these things. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we are, we are but dust. Inconsistent, foolish, weak, proud on our best days. We are reminded even in this that our hope is not in us. It is in you. God, if you do not accept us because of Jesus's perfect righteousness, we have no hope because all I see in my own heart when I stop and look at these things is, is failure, is hypocrisy, is inconsistency, is judgment and condemnation and and lack of forgiveness, I see it, and it's blatant, and it's glaring, and I hate it, and don't know how to stop it. And Jesus, if you don't come in and help, what, what hope is there? But the hope is you. You are the hope. You are all of the righteous things that I will never be, that none of us will ever be. And I'm accepted now in you because of your righteousness. And now you've given us your spirit within to live out that righteousness, to convict us and confront us about our hypocrisy and our inconsistency and our failures. So Lord, make us humble. Humble enough just to, to recognize it and admit it. Humble enough to, to seek your face in repentance and repentance and ask for grace and strength to make it day by day, to treat others as you would treat us, to live out the things we believe, to know why we believe them, and to go after them with all our heart, recognizing that we're all working to that day when we will 
reach a unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God together around your throne. So we thank you for your word this morning. Convict and challenge us through what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.